When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Since 2008, Big Think has been sharing big ideas in small, powerful doses from the most creative thinkers of our time. The Think Again podcast takes us out of our comfort zone. We surprise some of the smartest people you know with ideas they're not prepared to discuss. I'm very, very excited to be joined today by Chief New York Times film critic A.O. Scott, who is also a distinguished professor of film criticism at Wesleyan University. His new book is Better Living Through Criticism, and I was going to call it penetrating or illuminating or refreshing, but the book says adjectives are for lazy critics. <laughs> Welcome to Think Again, A.O. Thanks, Scott. nice to be here, but I'll, I'll accept adjectives. Okay, well, all of those adjectives in my mind do apply to your book. Well, thank you. <laughs> all right, A.O. Scott. What gives you the right to sit there and tell people what's good and not good and who the heck do you think you are anyway? I mean, nothing particularly gives me the right. One of the, the great things about being a critic is that there's no license, there's no credential. I was not ordained at a seminary of, of, of critics. <laughs> um, what gives me the right is just what gives everybody else the right. right. And I'm lucky enough to have a job that allows me to, to share what I think with readers. One of the things that I really enjoyed in your book is that you have this kind of conceit that runs through the book where you're interviewing yourself, sometimes quite harshly. <laughs> <laughs> and there was this one section in the chapter called Self-Criticism, I believe, where, where you basically were pegging yourself, <laughs> yes. like demographically, and you were like, you know, you're this suburban kid that got into punk music to escape your little suburban existence and then, you know, hip-hop music because that somehow made you feel, you know, connected to broader cultures, etc. And I was sitting there listening to that and thinking that I, I could have been reading about myself. <laughs> I don't know. I just, I guess I wonder how the critic, and you write about this, you know, negotiates the anxiety or the imperative to say what you think, say it definitively and at the same time deal with the fact that people are like, huh, you know, you're coming from this. Well, we're, we're all coming from somewhere. And, I, and I, I think the idea that critical judgment is sort of coming from nowhere or from above our ordinary experiences in our ordinary life is, is if it ever had any validity, it certainly doesn't anymore. And I think that you have to be honest about who you are and where you're coming from. And, and I've tried to do that in my criticism 
too, you know, that, right. that, that I am somebody, you know, I'm a white guy, I'm a dad, I live in Brooklyn. I mean, I'm, I'm a complete sociological stereotype in a lot of ways, which, which is what that, <laughs> that dialogue was, was getting at. I mean, it's, it's worse than anybody even knows. You know, I drive a Subaru, I have, <laughs> I have a, a, a lab retriever, you know, it's just, it's embarrassing. If, if you know, they, I'm, 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 sometimes I'm just a walking Portlandia sketch. But, <laughs> you probably shouldn't be saying these things here. <laughs> no, but, but everyone knows them. You know, right, okay, you know, yeah. I mean, who who am I fooling? But but I I think it's important to to acknowledge that or not to try to describe that. But also, one of the great things about just being a human being is that you can be curious about all kinds of experiences, all kind of work. You can discover through movies, through books, through music, something of the realities of other people's lives. It doesn't mean that you own that experience or you experience it fully, but you learn something about it and, and you, you learn about it through empathy and through emotion and through the pleasures of experiencing uh, works of art. And I think also when you're a critic, you're trying to think clearly and you're trying to turn your own experience into something that is objective, not in the sense that you have an objective judgment, but that it exists as an object in the world. So I might, you know, see a movie and be confused by it or charmed by it or delighted by it or puzzled or troubled or any other thing. But for me, just to say that that's how I felt doesn't do anyone any good. What's potentially interesting or useful to other people is, is how I construct an argument around that response, how I turn it into something that can be part of a conversation. I feel like a lot of times these days, the conversation turns to your opinion is irrelevant because you are a X, Y, or Z. I mean, I, I think there is some of that, and I think some of it is a reaction against the narrowness and exclusivity of a lot of cultural discussion as it's been practiced for a very long time. Sure. You know, and, and a way that people coming from other backgrounds and, and just having other voices and other perspectives are, are demanding inclusion in that. And the more of that, the better. I mean, I think that, you know, anybody has a right to talk about anything, but <laughs> you also have to justify your point of view, defend your ideas, and be open to other people's. You know, it doesn't mean you have to just sort of be quiet or be sheepish, but it is worth listening. I mean, part right. of being a critic, part of being a writer is listening and being able to, to acknowledge that your own view might be partial, might be limited, might in some ways that you hadn't really understood be wrong. That's a nice place for us to segue into the second part of the show where you and I are pretty much in the same boat. We're going to see three video clips, which okay. the audience will hear. These are past interviews from Big Thing. Okay. And they could be on any subject, and I don't know what they are. They were chosen for us. So uh, are, are we ready? Okay, let's go. All right, let's see what we have. So the first one, oh, okay, this is Jesse Ventura, and it is called Jesse Ventura Has a Message for Martin Shkreli and Donald Trump. Pharma is corporate health care, and I don't believe that health care should be a for-profit business. And unfortunately, with pharma, it totally is. Like this bozo, that pill that AIDS patients needed. And this bozo raises the price from $12 a pill to, what was it, $900 or something ridiculous? Well, there you've got an example of private sector coming in and making everything for profit. Always remember that there's a difference, and this is for the like CEOs like Trump that run. There's a difference between government and a corporation. Corporations are for profit. That is all they're for. 
the pure libertarian's almost an anarchist. I've butted heads with them at times, and they believe there's, some of them, that there's no role of government at all. And I've kind of said, come on, in a civilized society, you've got to have some type of entity that performs fairness within society. You'd have anarchy. One takeaway for me is that I, I need to use the word bozo more. That is just an excellent word, just the way that he used it. <laughs> yes. I don't feel like, and I think I, you know, the New York Times would probably let me put it into print, but it's it's just a great word. It is a this, great this word. Bozo. Right? Just <laughs> even with that, with that accent too. I, it's it's interesting to see because I remember you know when he, when he was running for governor and became governor, and he was sort of one of these sort of Ross Perot, even maybe a little rightish, libertarianish kind of guys. And now, I mean, he's apparently a democratic socialist or a social democrat of some type. I mean, yeah. I, I, I I was was very impressed and a little bit surprised hearing what is to me an entirely persuasive defense of the role of government as a check against the excesses of the marketplace and yeah. attack on the corporate model uh, of governments coming from, from Jesse Ventura. But, you know, <laughs> there's not a lot for me to argue with <laughs> there. Um, it surprised me. I mean, that, I don't think I, I've been following him that much since he left office as, as governor, but I, I, that is not the ideological line I would have expected Jesse Ventura to take. Nor I. I guess what we like about him or why he succeeded as governor of Minnesota and is similar to what people like about Trump mm -hmm. and Bernie Sanders, this idea that somehow they're outside of the game. Ventura still seems to be making up his own mind about things. Yeah. Well, and speaking honestly, I mean, I, I think that it, that's the appeal of Trump and Sanders in their very different ways, too, is that you look at so many politicians, how careful they are about what they say and how scripted and how fundamentally dishonest so much political discourse is or sort of spun and massage. So like, what do you really mean? And, you know, a, a lot of the views that politicians hold can be quite extreme, but they tend to try to present themselves in a slick, palatable, anodyne or neutral way. And I, I do think that there's always an appeal for someone who comes into politics from the left or from the right or from the, the, the radical angry middle who, who says, you know, who does the Jimmy Stewart thing, who sort of stands up right. and, and, and tells the truth. But I think that what's powerful about what Jesse Ventura is, is doing there is that it's something that he's saying very plainly, something that I think a lot of people know and feel and don't see reflected enough by politicians, which is this criticism of corporate power. And, and right. it's like, well, who, you know, Money has, has such a distorting effect on politics, and when people can just sort of stand up and say, well, look, this is wrong, right. um, it's quite refreshing. I feel like we're at a point where that position still is dismissed or dismissible in the media as somehow naive and like, oh, it's the younger voters that are going for Bernie Sanders. I mean, right. not so much Trump, but... Right. And then furthermore, like in, in education, there seems to be left-right parity on these hybrid public-private models, yeah. you know, of, of how to run schools. No, exactly. And, and I think that certainly in, in education reform, you know, the Democratic Party bought in in a very big way. And to a, a corporate managerial ideology, I think that institutions of higher learning have jumped on this bandwagon. And I, I think that the problems with that and the resistance to it have been kind of suppressed in a way. And I do think, you know, that, that a lot of people say, wait, wait a minute, just wait a minute. Who are you? Why are you doing this? What interests are being served? 
that's a form of populism that's very powerful and doesn't easily track left or right. But yeah. people who feel that decisions are being made for them by people who have a lot of power and a lot of influence and a lot of money who don't necessarily have their interests at heart. I, I think what, what Jesse Ventura was saying about libertarianism was very interesting because government is not, the state is not the only form of authority. It's not the only threat to freedom. And libertarianism, it's big weak point is that it just sees freedom as a purely economic matter and ends up defending corporate power, whereas corporations, whether as, as employers and bosses or manipulators of public behavior and, and, and the marketplace, have a lot of power and can curtail people's freedom in very serious ways that, that people will resist and that, yeah. you know, that resistance will, will come from somewhere and will take some form that can't necessarily be predicted and controlled and managed by politicians. It goes back to something that you talk about in your book. We're in a time where there tends to be a lot of justifying of things in terms of their being quantifiable, yeah. empirical. Yeah. The yeah. corporate model is very much about measurability. And you know, your book is in some ways a defense of a different kind of thinking, the sort of yeah. the right to ask questions and not, you know, that all answers are not found through simple measure, measure. Well, exactly, and that there is data and metrics and that kind of information is, is very useful, but it does not, can't substitute for, for I guess, a more, a more qualitative or more, I mean, we're still human beings, as Jesse right. Ventura says, and we can't just reduce our humanity and all of its complexity to just sort of numbers or to economic behavior. I mean, I, I, I have been reading recently a new book of essays by Marilyn Robinson, ah, yes. Givenness of Things, who comes at this more from a Christian perspective, but who I think is a very powerful critic of this sort of economic, materialistic, data-driven approach to human life right. um, by saying that, well, no, like we are precious as human beings for our ability to feel and to imagine and to think and to create. We can't just mortgage that for some other values that are cheaper, that are more expedient, and that don't acknowledge and honor our dignity as human beings. And I think that, right. that that's a very powerful position, and it's important to defend that dignity, whether you're working in the arts and culture, whether you're working in media, whether you're working yeah. in politics. Definitely. Okay, so let us see what we have next. This is Sherry Turkle. She's the founder and yeah. director of the MIT Initiative on Technology and Self. Are our smartphones trapping us in antisocial bubbles? Uh, yes, end of story. <laughs> Solitude is a big part of my story about reclaiming conversation. And some people say, well, why is that? I mean, solitude, conversation. Reclaiming conversation begins in solitude, and here's why. That you need to be able to gather yourself to yourself and have a capacity for solitude before you can turn to someone else and really hear what they have to say. If you don't have a capacity for solitude, you turn to someone else and you're projecting onto them who you need them to be for you, and you can't hear who they really are. And instinctively, we shun people like that. And you know, technically, they're narcissistic personalities, but we don't need to know their technical name. We just, we just know we're uncomfortable about them because they're not giving us a chance to be us. 
This is reminding me of my dinner with Andre. <laughs> There's this part where the director, Andre Gregory, is telling Wallace Shawn how he's been meditating and he goes, he sits in silence for long periods of time and Wallace Shawn is like, that sounds awful. I can't, I don't know, I would go crazy, ah, you know. I mean, obviously they didn't have uh, smartphones back then, but similar anxiety at, at dealing with solitude. I really like her idea, and I really agree with it, about the relationship between solitude and conversation, that we can only really be with people in a sustaining or fulfilling way if we know how to be alone. And, and it's interesting to ask what other experiences count or don't count as solitude. I mean, I find, you know, watching a movie is a form of solitary reverie. And I mean, Roger Ebert had a whole kind of theory about the difference between watching film and watching video that movies were like a dream state of reverie, partly because of the motion of motion pictures is an illusion, that there are these, right. these instants of darkness. Your eye and your mind have to work to complete them and to connect them okay. through, through the persistence of vision. And this was, was a kind of generative state of semi-dreaming consciousness. And, right. and so uh, like the productive solitude that she's talking about, whereas the video image without those breaks, without making your mind do that kind of would narcotize and hypnotize you in a way. It's weird though, because like the, the I'm on my phone all the time, you know. And, <laughs> I was going to ask you like I, what I, your relationship I am, is. And with I'm your, like, yeah. I am like I my and I'm on my phone. Like I go for long walks, you know, my way of you know when I need to clear my mind to write. But now I have this new phone that like with the little sort of Fitbit type app okay. on it. So like we were talking about data and quantification, but like. I'm always looking at how many steps I took. It's, it's, it's terrible. It's like I, I, a few times a day, I'll click on that little heart icon and be like, "Oh wow, six thousand. That's pretty good." I'm always aiming for ten, ten thousand, because I'm, you know, I'm trying to keep healthy and fit for a person my age. So. But yeah, but then I'm I'm also oh, well, I wonder if anyone said anything on Twitter. Right. Um, I, I mean, Twitter. I'm not on Facebook very much because. That's kind of a little sometimes too intimate and too weird. But like Twitter, <laughs> it's like you're at this just nonstop cocktail party and everyone's talking and like listening on a conversation. Yeah. You, you say something cute. You walk away. That feels like a conversation. I mean, I don't know. Is that is that a real conversation? It's sort of, I mean, I don't know about solitude, but it sometimes makes me feel less lonely if I'm trying to be inside my own head and, and write for a period of time. Um, yeah, what counts as solitude? I mean, even when you're writing, when you're sitting down to write a, yeah. a, a review, you're, you're not alone. You're there with the object that you are interacting, you know, the movie or whatever right, you're right. reviewing. When any of us sits in silence, our head is buzzing yeah, <laughs> with yeah. interactions and, and memories. And I guess the Buddhists, you know, argue that you could get past that. I actually went, I did go on a meditation retreat. I'd never done it before, but I went wow. with my family on a yoga and meditation retreat. And it was really interesting. Like, well, with the meditation, I kept thinking, you know, I kept thinking, and I would, <laughs> I would think to myself, am I doing this right? You know, I, I just like, I feel like I'm just sitting here um, <laughs> thinking about what I might have for lunch, and I'm thinking about when my book is going to come out. I'm thinking, right, this right. Is, but this can't be, this can't be. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I do agree with Sherry Turkle, that in order to interact with other people, you need to somehow get to the place mm -hmm. of knowing thyself, which, you know, for me, when I was like 16, that was writing in my journal yeah. pretty much from that time through my early 20s. Yeah. I was just yeah. like filling journals with thoughts, you know, or, or through meditation. But somehow, you know, there must be a time where you are 
disconnected from the steady stream of input and trying to wrestle with like, what do I really think? Where am I? I, I think that's true, and I don't know. I mean, I, I sometimes am a little skeptical of, of a kind of generational bias that, that may be in what she was saying right. a little bit. Kind of kids these days. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And, and, and when I was a kid, it was television. If this is going to rot your mind and kids are watching television. There were all these alarming studies about how many hours of television right. the American <laughs> child is, is watching. And my parents were fairly strict about it, like when we could right. watch. And both my sister and I, like, as a result of that, as soon as we like, <laughs> moved out and had our own television, we just, like, you know, we would watch MTV for, like, for 15 hours <laughs> at a time. Um, so there, there's a little bit of that, you know. That And, you know, she said, no, it's different now, and but it's always different now. And go back and look at some of the alarmist literature of the 19th century. It's about novels. It's about how, right. like, young people, especially young men who should be who should be out you know working and and doing productive things and farming and building railroads or whatever are frittering away their time and in, in, right. in novels and in dissipating and debilitating reveries so uh, you know there there's kind of nothing new under the sun in that way except that you know there are always are new things under the sun so yeah. i'm i'm not i look at my students i look at my children i think okay yeah i mean you do have this other way of interacting with, certainly with technology. Right. Um, but I'm always just a little hesitant to take the next step and say, you know, toward this, this is a terrible social disaster. Also, because what, you know, what are we, we going to do? <laughs> yeah, I totally hear you. I mean, I, and, uh, you know, I mean, on the one hand, what if all the old fogies throughout history were right and right, things actually right. were better, right. you know, like 10,000 right. years ago? Right. But, but, <laughs> but uh, you know, and I think we do can, and can make choices, you know, about how yeah. we spend our time. But yeah, there's a certain extent to which you cannot swim upstream and like make all the cell phones go away. You know? Yeah, and you have to figure, you know, you have to figure out how to, you know, how to defend, I guess, your, your solitude, the integrity of yourself, your relationships with other people. There are always pressures, right? I mean, we're, we're always easily distracted and overstimulated, and so anything that can get us to to slow down, to take a breath probably a good thing. Yeah, thinking clearly has to be a good thing. Yeah, yeah. So next up, we have a video called You Cannot Cheat Death, which seems self-evident, uh, by John Gray, the right. philosopher. In respect of many of these technological projects of, of, of immortality, what survives is not the person who once lived. In um, Kurzweil's version, as I understand it, elements of the conscious mind, of the conscious self, and are somehow programmed, computed, and then projected into cyberspace where that self-aware mind can create a variety of bodies for itself in a virtual environment. So rather than having the one frail, aging, vulnerable body that we each of us have, people can have a whole variety of different bodies, different genders. When they get bored with them or want to change them for other reasons, they can have as many as they want. My objection is that what would survive would not be the person, because first of all, it would only be the parts of the person which are conscious and can be programmed. The larger part of each of us is not conscious. It's in part of ourselves which is not accessible to conscious awareness. It's funny, when, when, I, was, like, when I was a kid, when I was little, I don't know how old, but I sort of had 
one of the ways that I dealt with, you know, because when you're a kid, there's always the traumatic discovery that you're going to die. The news is broken to you one way or the other. And it's shocking because, and it partly has to do with the idea of like, how could I not be? How could this, <laughs> right. this consciousness that is everything that I know, how could that just like stop? The fantasy that I would have to comfort myself was a kind of a version of the a non-technological version of this, of sort of the, the transmigration of souls, that I would become other people, that I would still be me, but I would just inhabit, yeah, different bodies in different places. And the way I would know everything about the, the, the world and, and satisfy my own curiosity in a way would be just to become all these different versions of myself, <laughs> past, present, future, other places. And I, I had this sort of idea of how the mathematics of it would work. Like I would be everyone I had ever met and then everyone they had ever met and everyone <laughs> they had ever heard of. So eventually I would just get to see what it was like to be everybody. That's a critic's fantasy. Yeah, basically. It, <laughs> in, in, in a way. And, and, and you discover sort of shortcuts to do that through, through works of art, which allow you to get very close to other consciousnesses. Certainly I found a lot of that in books, but... I think what John Gray is getting at that I find very moving is in his own way he's defending an idea, an ideal of human dignity sort of and, and this idea that part of what makes us human, part of what grounds us in our own identities, in, in our own selves is ultimately mortality, is that it's finite. If we let go of that tragic sense of, right. of, of being just who we are, then we're going to lose something. And he's he's not willing to take that bargain. He's saying, right. you know, this me, this body, this set of experiences, also this unconscious, these desires, these things that are not just part of my conscious, self-aware mind, but that are the, the shadows and the texture around it. That's what counts. That's what's really me. This other thing, yeah, is the thinned out, uploadable version of me. And I, and I think it's a very profound question. And, and it's one that philosophers never have tired and probably never will tire of, of arguing about, is what, yeah. is what is the self? Where does the self live? And it's an overwhelming question. It's a question that's sort of terrifying to think about, because you sort of get to this feeling of like, how can I be so tiny and so small and so contingent, and yet how can I feel so big to myself? Right. And we'll never, you know, answer that question of what the self is. No. But if one wants to say that by losing death, we would lose something that is essential to the self, that might be the old fogey problem again, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Who yeah, knows sure. what right. it would turn into? You know, right, uh, right. It's, I, it's, that's certainly true. Because we, we've, yeah, and are we that sure? Because he's, he's proposing like a very clear, you know, there's a difference between immortality of the sort of, that, that technologically enabled singularity style thing. And I think what he calls indefinite longevity. I love that he says it with the hard G also. <laughs> longevity. longevity. Um, this is a man who has learned yes. words through reading, <laughs> yes, I think, yes. yes. <laughs> well, you still sometimes meet people who say Los Angeles. You know? Or maybe it's a British thing. Yeah, it maybe, might be a British maybe, thing. Yeah, um, but, but sort of to, to be sure that there's a categorical distinction between those things, I sort of wonder about that. It's like, well, are we sure? How do... How do we know? You yeah. know? And how do we know when we've reached a sort of the, the limit case? Yeah, it's the same with the technology. I'm not sure we can ever be sure that this time it isn't really the, <laughs> the science fiction dystopian disaster that we've avoided so far. <laughs> right. Or if this is just another turn of the wheel of some people in the world as they, as they age and they find the world less and less familiar say, this is, you know, right. this is terrible. Change is scary. Change is scary, yeah. 
Ayo Scott, reluctantly, I have to let you go, but thank you so much for being on Think Again today. Oh, it was such a great pleasure. It was really fun. And audience members, please run out and take a look at, share with your friends, Ayo Scott's new book, Better Living Through Criticism. I really, really enjoyed it. And that's it for this week's episode of Think Again. Our new theme song, which I am so psyched about, is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our show is produced by Rachel James. Come find us on Twitter at BigThinkAgain. I'm the one that tweets on there. Connect with me. Let's talk. And we'll be back next week with Jan Martel, the author of Life of Pi. See you then.